Welcome to the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, therapist, CEO, and high-level coach. At Mindful Mutiny, we respectfully rebel against anything that stands between you and achieving your highest potential. Today, I have an awesome guest. The name of the game today, what you're going to get out of this is understanding what resilience is about in a life, in a practical way. Because Derek Frank and his life, it's been all about resilience. Make sure that you like and subscribe to this podcast and the platform that you're listening to, because that really helps in making sure that we're getting the kind of exposure that we need to bring this these wonderful messages of hope and people's lives to everybody's ears. So Derek Frank, thank you so much for joining Mindful Mutiny. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, this is this is an honor to be on here. And we have a mutual friend in Mark Bennett that you already had on the show. And anytime Mark says, hey, you need to talk to this guy, I know I need to actually do it and listen. So I'm I'm really glad that he connected us. Yeah. And Mark's Mark's story was also pretty remarkable from a just like resilience and and uh, going and getting it sort of way. Derek Frank's life has always been centered around music, overcoming skepticism in a small town in Illinois to pursue his passion in the music industry. A music major at Eastern Illinois University, he, ga he gained retail insights by working at a local music store. His journey led him to Nashville, where he played a pivotal role in opening up the Nashville School of Rock and later became the general manager. Formerly as an artist relations manager for KHS America, Derek represented iconic musical brands like Honer and Lanakai ukuleles, uh, building artist rosters and contributing to a legacy uh, of renowned musicians. Derek now does music branding, consulting, and opening, and is opening a nonprofit organization with the Oak Ridge Foundation and Best Buy to help children explore music robotics, technology, and things that are really going to benefit them in their lives. And so I've invited Derek on here to tell his really unique story about how it is that he's become, what he is, and, and where he is and what he's doing. So Derek, can you talk about what it is that you're doing right now? Yeah. So uh, after 11 years in Nashville, that city that I worked so hard to get to and to make it in, um, and you know, the, the term make it is such an interesting statement because it's different for everybody. Um, but after 11 years, my wife and I decided this isn't what we love anymore. Um, and we didn't want to be in the town to the point that we hated it. We, if, and so our family's still back in the Midwest. They're on the Illinois side of the Mississippi river and the quad cities. And we're like, okay, we, we've got a bunch of nieces and a nephew and, and all of these people that were missing them grow up and missing all of this stuff. What if we move closer to home? And my only stipulation was I need an airport that can get me to major cities because clients and different things that I do. Um, and so we were here a few weeks and, you know, I was uh, doing my own business, doing my own thing, whatever, just trying to get my bearings. You know, the house is still in boxes and my, uh, my second cousin works for Oak Ridge Neighborhood, and she made a post on Facebook about them getting this grant with Best Buy Foundation to open up this teen tech center in Des Moines. And it was like, oh, okay. It has recording studio space, drones, 3D printers, VR, coding, robotics, all of this stuff that I was into. And so I messaged her, and I was like, hey, 
you know, what is this? And she told me about it. She's like, I didn't think you'd be interested. And so I met with their team there and, you know, got offered the, the gig really quickly. And the great thing about it, so uh, it's a free program for anybody 13 to 21 in the Des Moines area. And it still allows me to do my own business while being able to give back to the community. So you, you actually get to see the kids and interact with them or are you, are you doing the work yet? Or is this very, very new? Oh, it's very new. So uh, construction's almost done. We have our soft opening December 1st. That's giant fingers crossed. Um, still, I, I was just checking on the space today and like the painters are way behind. And for me, my dad's a painting contractor and I'm like, man, I'm going to take that brush out of your hand. Like, I, I need you to get this done. <laughs> my, like, my timeline is just shrinking. Um, but yeah, so we'll have our soft opening, and we'll do that for a few months, and then we'll decide when the grand opening is, once we know that all the, the bugs are ironed out. Your, your, your career that's led you to this place, you've been in music for a really long time, and you've, you've worked with you know, big artists throughout the United States and, you know, who have you worked with and what have you done with them? Yeah. So working with Honer, um, and, and I've worked with artists on, on my own as well, doing opening acts and, um, as a touring musician, but really when I really got to start working with artists was school of rock. And then when I went to Honer and, um, artists like Steven Tyler and Bob Dylan, Chris Jansen, basically if a professional played harmonica, there's a 95% chance that it was a honer. And so if you saw somebody playing a harmonica, they had to deal with me. I was their guy, um, which was really interesting because I didn't really love the harmonica. I grew up on the Mississippi River in, uh, <laughs> in a place that was a blues town, really, and everybody tried to play. And if I had to hear another bad train beat on a harmonica, you know, the <laughs> I was going to vomit. So when this opportunity came up, I was like, I mean, this is a great gig, but oh, harmonicas, really? And then I, I, as I learned more about it and met the roster, I fell in love with it. And I still miss that gig every day. Um, but it was one of those things where you grow and you got to move on. Do you, do you know much about the history of the harmonica? Because I do not. Yeah, so uh, I believe it was originally created in China. Um, and then, you know, throughout the years migrated, but really where it became most famous is in Germany. Um, that's where Honer's based out of Honer is like the big dog. They're over 80% market share in all harmonicas. It's, it's pretty impressive. And they're still handmade in Germany in, in Trossingen, Germany, in this little bitty town in the middle of the black forest. Of I mean, there's nothing are. there. The only things there are like the factory, the hotel for people that come to visit the factory and like a grocery store, there's nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I, I I know nothing about the harmonica. I know 100% more about the harmonica now. So <laughs> yeah, and I actually invented a harmonica. Tell me more about so, this. So not being a harmonica player and having to be around the best harmonica players in the world and always going to conventions and different trade shows like NAMM, People want to hear the harmonica. And I'm like, oh. So I took a couple lessons uh, with a guy named Ronnie Shellist. Ronnie's a world-class artist and, and educator. And I did okay, but I'm like, man, I don't have the time to learn a whole new instrument. And it, it didn't make sense. Like the layout, they're, in, they're, they're tuned diatonically. 
but the yeah. layout isn't what I would have thought. I would have thought blow, draw, blow, draw, blow, draw. And that's not the case. It just kind of it switches and it inverts. So I was like, I just want to rip a blues solo. How do I play a blues like the, the pentatonic scale? He's like, man, that's kind of hard. You have to be able to bend and you have to, you know, work around with your mouth. So it, it takes like a year if you really try hard. I'm like, yeah, I don't have that kind of time. So I asked the guys, I said, hey, has anybody ever made a pentatonic tune harmonica? And they're like, you know, it's been brought up multiple times, but that's a stupid idea. I'm like, okay. So I went to our tech and I was like, hey, make me this. And he's like, that's, that's really dumb. And I'm like, cool, make it anyway. And so he did. So then about a week later, I came to the office and I'm starting to play solos. And he's like, man, how much are you practicing? How many lessons have you taken? And I'm like, oh, no, here's what I did. And that's when the light bulb just went off. So it's called the Pentaharp from Honer. Um, and, you know, it did really well on the launch. It's really more so designed for guitarists and, and people who don't want to have that theoretical knowledge of a normal diatonic harmonica. You can just play the pentatonic scale with the blue note. But then it was kind of cool as it evolved. The whole campaign when we launched it was guitarists love it. Harmonica players hated it because we knew they were going to hate it, obviously. And they're like, this isn't what we need. And, and then a group of harp players found that it could do all these different things that no other harmonica could do. So is it the end-all, be-all? No. We never, I didn't design it to be that. Um, I didn't know it had these other attributes. But is it another tool to put in the repertoire? Of course. So that was our whole our whole marketing with it. It wasn't trying to replace the the traditional diatonic harmonica. It was just another tool. You you created the gateway drug for harmonica. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. That that's actually pretty great because I'm seeing a whole lot more <laughs> of um, instruments that are being created for the person who doesn't have the time to devote to becoming a master at it. And drums are, you're seeing a lot of that with drums and you're seeing a lot of that with these ki these kinds of instruments like the one that you invented here so that people can enjoy the feeling of making music, which is such a primal thing for us, even though they don't necessarily have two hours a day devoted to learning all the fundamentals, but maybe it inspires somebody to learn more. Yeah, and that was my goal with it was the entry point of a harmonica seems like it's easy because it's tuned to a key. And yeah. then you get people that get it like, oh, this isn't easy at all. And that's where this kind of eliminates that. So instead of while you're learning to play, you're also having to learn your embouchure and, and all of these other techniques and find the notes and be able to bend. Now you just play the notes. And and that was really the idea of, be, you said it, the gateway drug of harmonicas of, Okay, now you got this. Now jump to a diatonic. Oh, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. Now take me back to the beginning of everything here. And you've lived a, a really incredible life up to this point. And a lot of it has had to do with you making big decisions and taking risks and so forth. So talk to me about the young Derek and what were you doing and what was life like? Well, young Derek was all about music from an early age. Um, when I was four, right, right around four or five years old, my dad is a bass player. He um, toured and did all that and then decided to settle down and start a family and started his construction business. Um, and so one time he had a drummer that owed him money from a gig 
And he's like, well, I'm going to keep your drum set until you pay me back. And that drum set stayed in our basement for as long as I knew. I, I, I knew that was the end of that story. <laughs> it usually is with a drummer, right? <laughs> <laughs> you get it. So, uh, so I would just go down there and kind of beat on it. But my dad realized like, oh, he's actually like trying to put things together. He's not just hitting stuff. And my dad's not a drummer. Like he's not the guy that could help. But he saw that like I just kept trying. And then he would play different records and I would listen to him and try to play along with it. And it, it worked. And then they were like, okay, let's try, let's put him in lessons. So I started doing drum lessons when I was uh, eight years old. And uh, the drum teacher I had was incredible. He went to the same high school as me, but he was in college or just finishing college at Western Illinois university. He was all about marching. And so I didn't even know what that was. I was eight years old. And so I go in there and he's like making me do all this stuff in a book and work on my hands. I'm like, this is boring. I already know how to play drum set. Like, and he's like, no, no. And because of his approach and his patience with me, it gave me this drive to keep learning drums. And that drive turned into like anywhere from two to six hours a day, every day practicing because I loved it. And the better I got, the more I played with my dad and it got to the point where he'd be playing gigs and they'd be like, Oh, well let your kid come and sit in. It'd be cute. You know, get the audience attention for a few songs. And they're like, Oh wait, kid can play. And then it was, I'll let him do the last set. You know, then the drummers at the bar getting tanked. And then it was like, ah, let him do the third set. And he would go get tanked. And they're like, Oh, he's got to finish the fourth set because the drummer can't play. And it just became a thing. And then I started playing professionally because of that. So like around like 10, 11 years old, I started getting some gigs professionally. Because they know that 10-year-old can't be drinking on stage. He better not be drinking on stage. <laughs> so it was like the only dependable drummer in town, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but it was, it was such a cool experience. And, and because of that, my parents never made me play. There was never a push to do it. I just wanted it and I loved it. And I just, everything I did was playing drums. That's all I ever wanted to do. What was the, what was the <laughs> first song you learned all the way through on a drum set? And, you know, thinking back, it'd have to be something from the Beach Boys greatest hits. Because I remember getting a CD player. Like we had like, we we're like the first people in town that had a CD player. Yeah. Because my dad's cool. Like, you know, he's a musician and stuff. And I remember sitting in the basement with my brother, who's five years older than me, and my cousin, who's three years older than me. My cousin's also a drummer, a fantastic drummer. Um, and, and we're all, like, young. And we're trying to play along to this record. And I can't imagine the sounds that came out of that room. Like, we had guitars and basses, and my brother had a saxophone. I'm sure it was wretched at best. Yeah. But no one ever told us it was bad. So we just kept doing it. And so... I still like, I can't listen to the Beach Boys, any of their greatest hits, without thinking of sitting in that basement with my brother and my cousin. Then every now and then my dad would pop in and how strong that memory was of like, yeah, there's, there's a, the good saying, if no one ever tells you that you can't, do you know that you can't? Yeah. 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 My, my, my very first concert was the Beach Boys. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and so I worked with, I got to work with Brian Wilson in my career too. No um, way. Yeah. I even did a cruise. Uh, he was on what cruise that with uh, Kayamo. And so that was right before the pandemic hit. Oh, what a wonderful experience. Yeah. 
So like sitting there watching him and and his band, like Blondie was in his band still, and all of these guys. Yeah. Like I'm like walking around and Blondie's just walking around. And I'm like, Can I can I buy you a drink? He's like, Oh yeah, please do. So like it was just so surreal. And listening to them play these songs, and it just it transported me back. Like it makes the hair on my arms stand up just thinking about it. You know, it's 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 good news. It's super simple, and but but there's just there's something about it that's just so good and and so happy. Honestly, you know. Yeah. Yep. You know, so you you're 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 ten. You're already doing gigs, and what happens in the next few years? Um. Well, and and I and I should back up. So when I was born, um, I had a couple birth defects as well. Okay. So, um, my fingers on my right hand were webbed together. And so if you're right. anybody's watching the video, um, yeah. so my, my thumb and my index finger and my pinky and my ring finger on my right hand were connected and I don't have a knuckle on my pinky. So, gotcha. and then I had like a sixth toe on my right foot and everybody's like, Oh, I bet you're a really good swimmer. I'm like, yeah, NASCAR had a swimming event. I can only swim to the right. Like <laughs> put me in the far right lane and my head just keeps hitting the wall or something. But <laughs> so I had, uh, I had surgery to correct that when I was two years old. Um, and uh, thank God for Shriners hospital. And my grandpa was a Shriner. He was a Mason. And that's how I got into Shriners. Everything is free. They take care of the families. And, and I've had to have several surgeries since then, uh, before I was 18 and Shriners did all of them at no cost to us. It was incredible. They saved my life. Um, but because of that, you know, learning to play was interesting because my hand doesn't look the same when I'm playing. So if you see, like, if I'm doing marching stuff, my right hand looks different. You can't tell what it is. They're like, what is he doing? Um, so that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. But I do have a perfect fulcrum, no matter what. I can't close my hand without having a, a perfect fulcrum. Okay. So kind of an interesting thing with drums. So it was like drums were the perfect fit. I have to hold a drumstick. There's no, I can't hold it wrong. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And And so you've never had any... Um, troubles, uh, walking or, or anything I have like actually, that? I have, yeah. um, okay. I've, I had uh knee and foot surgery when I was 14, um, from sports injuries and different things. And my legs became two and a half inches off. So my okay. hips were out of the line. So they had to drill the growth plates out of my knee. And, uh, so I had my left knee and my right foot done. Uh, my right foot was the, the bad foot originally. And my big toe is pretty big and it started growing out to the left. And was like pushing through my shoes. So they had to cut a piece of the bone of the toe off, move it over, put two pins up and infuse one of the joints. Um, And, you know, and they did an amazing job. They had these specialists that timed out these surgeries to make sure my hips got in line with my knee and made sure that my foot was good and had this whole plan. And then uh, that same day I get out of surgery and my grandfather had been in intensive care for like a year. And they called back and told my brother, hey, Derek's okay. You can tell Grandpa he's fine. So he goes in and said, hey, Grandpa, Derek's out of his surgery. He's fine. And not much longer after that, he passed away. So, so it was like a really, really weird time. So I was a freshman in high school trying to figure out who I am. I just finished this state championship marching. You know, I was a, the only freshman on the drum line. It was incredible. And now I'm in a wheelchair my grandpa died. I had to leave the hospital three weeks earlier than I was anticipating. So I didn't get my, my rehab the way I was supposed to get. So it didn't heal right. And the only thing I could do 
is just sit and practice on a practice pad. That's all I could do for six months. So, I mean, I, there's a lot of pain that's involved in what you're talking about here. Was there any point at which you kind of struggled a little bit with feeling depressed or feeling sorry for yourself? Yeah. Um, there's still playing drums is very therapeutic for me, but it's also a lot of trauma involved. So even before that, when I was in fifth grade, uh, my parents had built like their dream home and we moved into this house. My dad had the basement built around a studio basically. So you could go in from the garage into the basement and no one would even know that they were there. So like if I had friends that wanted to come over at two in the morning and jam, it, they could. And my parents were cool with that as long as, you know, we weren't doing anything we weren't supposed to. And so this dream house happens. We're there and I move away from the town that I was in. I was still in the same school district, but all my friends were in this town. And so it was a little bit further away. And then um, the day before my birthday in fifth grade, found out my mom had colon cancer and pretty aggressive colon cancer. Um, and so on my birthday, we had to go to the doctor and kind of figure all this out. So all of this happened. She has surgery. She's fine now, by the way. She's been in remission for like over 20 years. Oh, so, wonderful. Yeah. But my mom is a fighter and she is stubborn as can be. Like I, I always said, she's too stubborn to die. So there was no way that was going to happen. But she didn't miss work. She was doing chemo and radiation, lost all her hair, was sick all the time. And my brother was at that point where he was almost out of high school, almost going in the military. So he was working all the time. My dad was working more so that, you know, we made sure we had enough money and that mom didn't have to struggle. And I was at home with my mom all the time. And I didn't even realize that this was so much of a thing until a couple of years ago when my my wife was joking around with my mom and was like, he is such a mama's boy. And he's like, oh, yeah, he is. And she's, she's like, no, he's like really a mama's boy. And she was like, I think there's like, you need to understand like what he went through. And she started talking about this. I'm like, I didn't remember this. She would come home after chemo and radiation and sit on the couch and basically pass out. And I would sit next to her, make sure she was still breathing and sit there with my practice pad and just practice. And I didn't even remember this. Like, talk about a suppressed memory until she brought this up again. Like, yeah, I did that. She's like every single day. Yeah. And yeah. so for me, practicing, while it does have a little bit of that trauma, the more I practiced, the more I got through that trauma. And so now it's almost like this subconscious thing of if I'm having a really hard time, practicing is hard to get to. But once I do it, it gets me through it better. You know, as you're talking about this, it almost sounds like that daily thing for you as a child was a vigil. It was the only control that you had over a very scary situation. And drumming became hand in hand with standing vigil and loving your mother. And so the the thing that you could do, the service that you could offer is simply to be there for her and to be there not only for her, but for you in knowing that you shared these this this time with her. And so practicing had to become at that point more than simply learning to play and, and getting better. It had to become a, a coping strategy for about the most existential thing that a child can deal with, not knowing what was going to happen to your mother. Yeah. And 
the more I've reflected on it and been through therapy and, and talked about this with people, uh, the more I realized the better I got at drumming because of this bad situation, the more positive energy and the more positive reinforcement I got from my peers and from the public. Cause they're like, Derek is so good. He is so good at playing. And so I was like, I wasn't the kid whose mom had cancer. I was the kid who was really good at drums at a young age. And it was like, Oh, Derek's the music guy. Derek's the music guy. Every, everything from singing to any musical or, or show that we had, Derek's the guy. And so like that negative energy of my mom being sick and people feeling sorry for you was gone because I, I just, it, it wasn't anything I tried to do. It just kind of happened because of it. So you're, you're, it's, it sounds like the way that you've coped with sorrow in your life is by diving deeper and deeper into your interests, into music, into using that as the thing that grounds you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're in high school, you've gone through this, this difficult situation where your mother, I'm assuming in high school is in remission and she's healing up and you are going in to get these surgeries that are altering your body in major ways. I imagine that there's back pain involved in some of this because your, your hips aren't aligned and, and everything like that. And you're going through school also trying to figure yourself out. And, and so, I mean, what were the, what were the hard parts in high school for you dealing with all of this? Um, a lot of it was kind of like finding my place and being this person of like, oh, why does he have all these surgeries and stuff? He looks normal. Like the word normal is such a weird thing too. And sure. And kind of navigating that, like, I don't want a pity party and I can do everything that anyone else does. And, but also like, I didn't want to be the one that got parts because of this, like, oh, he's getting this because his mom's sick or he's getting this because he had surgery or he's, I didn't want any of that. So I worked harder than everybody else. So they had no reason to ever say that. Or if they did, it could easily be proven wrong. Well, Derek's in the band room four hours a day. Derek's in the choir room two hours a day. Derek's at dance rehearsal two hours a day. Like you couldn't say that I got this stuff because of some other outside source. But because of that, drive i think it it pushed me so far into adulthood and that mentality of that's how i have to do everything that it burnt me out as an adult hmm. Hmm. and i guess i guess we'll kind of get to the burnout part of this but you're you're coming out of high school did you did you know what you wanted to do with your life as you're coming out of high school play drums or music okay. i started playing guitar when i was 16 because you know tearing down my drums at night it was hard to talk to all the girls so I was like, guitar player takes five minutes. I can do that. So I uh, told my dad, I'm like, hey, would you buy me a guitar? And he's like, uh, if you can learn to play a whole song on your own, I'll buy you a guitar. Like, okay. So I worked on it like a month or something. I'm like, hey, dad, because we had an acoustic. I don't want to play acoustic. I want an electric. And uh, I was like, hey, dad, check it out. And I start playing. He's like, do you know the lyrics? Are you going to sing? I'm like, well, no, you just told me to learn how to play guitar. I can't play and sing. And he's like, well, buddy, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not good enough at guitar to get a gig as a guitarist, so you better learn to sing. It's like, <laughs> oh. So I went back for a couple more weeks and learned how to do it. And uh, he made good and bought me my first guitar. And I still have that guitar. It's still my number one. He didn't buy me. I mean, he bought a nice guitar. And so it's still my number one. It's my baby. And, yeah, it's it's 
been a part of it's been at every show I've ever played in my life. That is awesome. <laughs> so so your your drive to play the guitar started with girls. Oh, totally. And and just wanting that much more attention. Like <laughs> I needed that. I I crave that attention. I love being the center of attention. Some people look at that as a as a bad thing of like, oh, you're narcissistic, whatever. And I'm like, all through school, people are like, you need to be proud of who you are. Unless you're someone like me that's loud and has to be the center. Oh, well, be who you are. But you need to tone it down a little except bit. Except for that. Yeah. Yeah. Except for that guy. So, um, but I just didn't care. I was like, okay, people are going to hate it. People are going to love it. That's why I said I'm love or hated, never ignored, ever. Well, the, 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 so you're in high school and I want to be a musician is usually a more difficult thing to jump out into than I'm filling out an application to go to a college. I'm going to be in a university. And so you are on this musician's track. What do you do after high school? Where, how do you follow that? Well, everybody pushed me into college. And I say everybody, not my family. I mean, they, they wanted me to because my parents didn't go to college. Okay. Um, they, but, but they didn't push me into it. It was everybody at my high school. Like, you're not going to be anything unless you have this degree to fall back on. Yep. The fall back on, it didn't make sense to me. <laughs> fall back on just, it didn't compute in my mind. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to, what do you mean fall back? I'm not going to fail. Like, if I fail, do it again until I get it right. Um, so, but I did love to teach. I loved working with kids and teaching. And I was like, okay, I could look into that. And so at first I looked at, uh, McNally Smith, which then was music tech, which now is closed, uh, up in Minneapolis to do more of like a recording thing. But I knew like, there's not that many recording studios in the world. And there's a lot of guys going through this program. Mm, uh, so I was like, thank God I made a good decision there. But then um, one of my mentors, Professor Johnny Lee Lane, was down at Eastern Illinois University. And Prof, you know, he had the United States Percussion Camp at EIU. I used to go to that as a kid, had all the best drummers there. I mean, it was an amazing. Um, and so I talked to Prof, and he, he was like, man, you need to come to EIU. So I made that decision. But as I made that decision, he left and went after like 30 years and left. There was some some things going on with the administration and it should have been a giant red flag for me, but sure. I, I pushed on. I wasn't even ready to do that really, but I did it. And, uh, and I was on scholarship and got there and it was just, it was a disaster. It was all a disaster. And, and as, as this is kind of like unfolding, this seemed like the safe thing. This seemed yeah. like the, the, the road to the future and it's a total mess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and i you know, I didn't get along with the new professor. I didn't really get along with the people in the program very well. They didn't like me. Um, I auditioned on snare drum and drum set for my scholarship. And in four years, I didn't touch a snare drum or a drum set. And right. yeah, and it was very much like, well, you need to learn how to play mallets. And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I want to be a commercial drummer. Like, yeah, I need to learn how to play. I can play mallets, but like, I don't want to spend six hours a day learning this. Well, that's what you have to do to get through this program. I'm like, that's not what we talked about. Well, prof's not here anymore. Okay, well, I get it. Like, well, prof would have made you do this. I'm like, yeah, well, prof would have respected me too. So, so how far into it when, you know, you're, you're noticing red flags for yourself, how far into it are you making this, the decision, 
yeah, this can't work out. This is not for me. This is not what um, I am. Within three weeks, but I still did it. I still finished the program. It was so bad that my parents came down for homecoming and saw me march on field and stuff. And they were so proud. And they knew it was, they knew it was bad. Bad enough that they wanted to pull me out. Hmm. And they could see it in my body language. And, and I never said anything was wrong. Um, but they, they could just tell. Yeah. Yeah. And you, how long was this program? Um, I mean, really to be, to be considered a percussion major, two and a half years, two and a half years, you were in an environment that was completely counter to where it is that you really wanted to go in life. Yes. And then you figure I still had to be around them the rest of, so basically four years. So even though I wasn't doing the percussion stuff, once I finished what I had to do, I was still around them for my education classes and methods classes and and also, EIU had torn down their whole arts department. Their, all the buildings got torn down because they were going to get new ones. And then the funding got messed up because Illinois politics. And they, they were supposed to open the buildings my sophomore year. They didn't open until the day after I graduated. So I had all of my classes in the original gym built in the 1800s. It was horrible. Like, yeah, it, it, just the whole thing was just awful so for two for for four years actually you did this because it felt like the thing that you were supposed to do yeah i felt like i i started this i had to finish it so you're everybody you're super and, stubborn then well i am but also like it was just ingrained and indoctrined in me that if i don't get this education degree i'm never gonna make it or i'll you know i won't have a job in in hindsight how do you feel about that I should have never gone to college. I am not the person that needed to go to college. Um, I should have moved to Nashville or LA and just started networking and playing and taking the money that I spent to go to college and invested in myself. And, pe- and even my parents are like, but you have that degree that got you some of these jobs. I'm like, no, it didn't. It might look like, Oh, he's got a degree. Let's call him. But my experience and resilience is what did that. So, you know, in, in college, I, I was in a fraternity because, well, these guys hate me. Might as well find somebody that likes me, even if I have to pay him to like me, whatever. I needed friends. And so I met this guy in my German class, and he was like, hey, come over to my house tonight. I think the Cardinals were in the World Series or something. We're, we, we Come eat pizza and stuff. I'm like, okay. So I get there. I'm like, it was a frat house. I'm like, nope, I'm out. And then I went, I was like, well, ah, free pizza, whatever. I'm in college. And then I met the guys and they were all really cool. And so, so that was good. Um, that made everybody in the percussion department hate me even more. And then as I got older, I I needed to work. I didn't want my parents to have to spend, you know, all their money on me in college. So started working at the music store where I taught lessons. I worked retail and I even DJed weddings for them. And, uh, and that was great. And then I also worked at a bar, uh, as a, as a bartender and a bar manager. So I had three jobs going at the same time, plus going to school. So what you're saying is you had a real problem with drive. Yeah. Yeah. A real problem. <laughs> so it's a, a four years is a long time to, to really endure that sort of thing, especially when you kind of look back and you see that it wasn't necessarily a overall helpful thing for you. So where do you go after college? Uh, so I graduated and 
didn't even look back in the rearview mirror at, at Eastern. I just got out and went back home. And a couple of, like the last last few summers I was in college, I did go home a little bit because uh, there was a music museum that opened in Davenport, Iowa, which is right across the river from my hometown. And my dad's best friend, who's you know known me since I was a baby, they've been friends since they were four. Um, he had been a, a big part of opening this music museum and he wanted me to be a part of it. So he gave me a job and they had a coffee shop. So I worked in the coffee shop one summer and the next summer I helped with like maintenance and different things and just kind of moved my way up. And then as I graduated college, they're like, Hey, we want you to run our, uh, conservatory. So basically they had lesson program and different things like that. So I ran all that, but they're a nonprofit. I made no money, like less than no money, but I loved it. It was so great. It was really awesome. Um, but it got to the point where I was, uh, you know, at my parents' house, living at my parents' house. And my dad was like, Hey, you, uh, you could either keep that job and continue living in our basement, or you could go to work for me making prevailing wage, which was like 35, $36 an hour and work okay. construction, which was the whole reason I went to college was so I never had to work construction. <laughs> um, but I was like, wow, I love my parents, uh, but uh, I'd really like to get out of here. And uh, so that's what I did. Well, good for you. You know, and, and you know, there's this trope that, it, and it's prevailed for so long, this trope. Young people are still getting told this. If you don't go to college, you're not going to be set up for success. And I know so many people who have just suffered through college. It wasn't something they were studying things that didn't seem to at the time have any relevance to where it is that they wanted to go. But you're you're often too young to be able to make the assertion, this doesn't fit with what I want in my life. And so you keep going and you keep going because it's what everybody's always told you that you need to do. And then most young people graduate, they've got these unbelievable student loans that stick with them for such a long period of time. And they go out into a world and kind of start, honestly, four or five years behind other people who have been out there building relationships and getting into a trade and everything like that. And so then you've gone to school, you've gotten a bachelor's degree, you've got your whatever degree, and you make more money doing construction and handiwork and electrician work and plumbing and everything like that. And so I'm I'm not really surprised that that's where things went for you. I mean, it's it's wonderful work. It's also odd that there's still this kind of weird notion that that is the only thing that creates a happy and fulfilling and prosperous life is if you go to a university and give them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I'm an advocate for getting away from that. Like they were so happy to take my money and, and let me sign on the dotted line. But then when I'm in college, borderline suicidal and suffering massive depression, no one's there. No one was there to help me. I'm telling people, they're like, oh, well, you know, get out and play at the wreck and stuff like that. Like uh, all of it was just, it just didn't work for me. And I did well in college. Like I, I got good grades, but it just wasn't for me. It wasn't what I wanted in I realized like when, when a school has more recruiters than they have counselors, there's a problem, which is every school. Because once you're there, you're there. They've got your money. 
and not all schools bad. Like I don't, I don't want to have a doctor that hasn't been to school. Like, you know, something, some things are important, but like for me to be a musician, what a waste, what a waste of my time. So what in school made you so depressed that you contemplated your existence? A lot of it was that, that part with, with the whole music program and what I, my path. And I was always the best and always had it figured out. And then it was just collapsing. And then I had a, a very toxic girlfriend in college as well that I was going to, I was going to transfer to FIU in Miami and I went down there for spring break and they like rolled out the red carpet. It was amazing. It was so good. My dad was like, if you don't go here, I will. This is beautiful. And uh, she asked me to stay. And of course that didn't work out. So all of that compiled, but, really like I was I was pretty low but I had some really great friends that picked me up and and I can never thank them enough for that and because of that that resiliency is what made it so like I'll get down everybody gets down but I always know like I can get out of it yeah yeah well, that's 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 pretty brilliant <laughs> you you uh you then kind of uh I kind of cut you off after you were talking about like where you go after school and everything like that. So you're, you're working construction. Yep. Where do you go from there? Well, I was playing in a band. Um, and the first band I was in, that's how I met my wife, the lead singer and her were best friends. And that didn't really work out. Um, I, I just needed more attention, <laughs> I guess. So I started my, my so I, I left that band or was kicked out, whatever one, or it depends on who you talk to. Um, <laughs> I, I was kicked out. I was kicked out. Um, but so my cousin, who is the drummer, is an amazing drummer. He calls me. He's like, hey, I'm moving back to the Quad Cities. I, I want to be closer to the family and all this stuff. And for my our, our lives growing up, he had moved away when we were younger. So we're in, like, grade school when he moved away. And they were, like, three hours away. And so I only got to see my cousin, like, my favorite cousin twice a year. So when he's moving back, the first thing I say is, dude, we're starting a band. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know, like, neither is it, but we knew we were starting a band, and we did, and it did really well, and it was my outlet where I was like, I loved construction because I was making great money, and when I left work, I was off work, and if I had a gig, my dad's a gigging musician, so he'd let me go. It was a pretty awesome situation, like, people like, oh, I bet that sucked. I'm like, I mean, it wasn't fun painting and doing drywall, but in the same token, I was working with my dad and my brother. Because my brother worked for my dad. Yeah. So it was like this, it was a family thing. And some days my brother and I'd have fist fights on the job site, but most of the time it was good. <laughs> That's just the kind of brothers we are. We're we're best friends. <laughs> Sometimes but, you, know, you gotta straighten stuff out. Man, and he's a lot bigger than I am. So he can he can and I run my mouth, so he can pound on me and you look scrappy though. It looks like you'd be all right. Oh yeah. I can take a punch. <laughs> I, can, I can take a punch. <laughs> And and so you're, you're you're gigging in the evening time. You're you're in a, a different band, and you know it, it honestly sounds in the way that it's this is so interesting in listening to you talk about this. You talk about school and the cadence of your voice goes down. The remembrance of that feels really really heavy and difficult for you. You talk about construction work. You talk about working with your hands. You talk about real relationships with people you care about. And this fulfilling thing on the side where you're playing music and it's it's it, it's it's a really important thing for you in, in this kind of environment. It's 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 interesting that those two things are so starkly different emotionally in the in the handprint that they had in your life. 
yeah, of course. Um, and, and it doesn't go unnoticed by me either. Like I'm, I'm very well aware at this point that that part of my life was really tough, but I wouldn't trade it. I'd change it, but I wouldn't trade it. Um, but also as I got into the band and, and had this happening where my cousin and I just, him and I did drum camp. We did the United States percussion camp together. We just have this weird sixth sense kind of thing where we know what each other's thinking. And you can see it. Uh, I've got a video of where when I moved, after I moved to Nashville, I was touring and had a drum, you know, a couple different drummers. I, I went through drummers pretty quickly because I'm a drummer and I had this guy and he was fine and whatever. So we get to the point in the night, it's a sold out show in my hometown. It's huge crowd, like 700 people. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to bring my cousin up on stage. And my dad was playing bass because my bass player couldn't make it for the show. So it's like the whole gang's back together. And the guy playing guitar lived in Nashville, but was went to my high school. He was a lot older than I was. But so it's like this huge family reunion. I haven't played with my cousin in three years. And he gets on the drum set, and it was like magic. He didn't know the songs we were playing. He just played. And he knows, like, he knows my feel and when I'm doing stops. He can just, he feels it. And, man, you, you can't replace that feeling. I don't care how great of a drummer somebody is, that feel and that anticipation of what I'm going to do, there's no better place in the world for me than sitting on a stage with my dad and my cousin and having this rhythm section that is so tight that somebody could throw a beer bottle at my face and I know the show won't collapse. Brilliant. Brilliant. You know, and so, so you're, you're, now, now you're experiencing kind of like adult human success uh, as yeah. a musician. You're, you're, that's a pretty strong crowd that you've got there. You know, um, I've, I've been to gigs just recently with, um, with pretty known bands in small venues like that. And, it, and the energy is really high, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, so where are you going from there? What, uh, what happens now? Well, so you know, that, that kind of mixed two stories in, in two timelines. But so I'm, I'm back in my hometown, you know, my wife and I get married, I'm playing gigs I'm working construction, all this stuff. And we're, we're both, you know, we're young and we don't have any money and anything like that or very little money. And it was to the point where it's like, are you going to settle down and start a family and buy a house and have that life that everybody else had? Everybody, all my friends grew up, have this life. My dad did this, gave up music to have the family. And um, I was really comfortable with that. I I always said I wasn't, but subconsciously, I really was. I liked being that big fish in the small pond. I liked everybody in town knowing me. I liked when there was an opening gig, my band got it. But my wife knew that wasn't going to be enough for me. And so she said, we need to move to Nashville. Let's, Let's go. We love it there. And... I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, that'll never actually happen. And at the time, um, I actually went to work for a company called Feral Gas, the propane company, like propane, propane accessories. <laughs> um, because they had this management track, and they, you know, they paid really well, too. And my dad's, like, a couple of his, his jobs that we had were slowing down. So I didn't, you know, was like, hey, I'm going to pivot and do this. And when I took the job, it was like, hey, I saw you have a location in Nashville. Like, would you ever transfer me? And they're like, yeah, if you put in like a year, 
uh, a year and a half or so, you can put in for a transfer. I was there three months, and they're like, hey, this location needs somebody. Well, the location I was at was like like top five in the company. The one I went to was bought like with the second worst. And so my wife gets a job immediately before we move. Um, so, you know, day one, moving to Nashville, our families move us down there. We've got no money. We're broke as shit. And we both start our jobs in that first day. And I walk in in like my suit because I'm, uh, you know, I'm in the management track. And the guy's like, oh, you look awful nice. I haven't met any of these people in person, only on the phone. He's like, oh, you look awful nice to be getting in a truck. I'm like, oh, am I doing ride alongs today? And they're like, no, you're driving. Oh, why? Did somebody not show up? <laughs> like, no, you're a driver. I'm like, no, I'm supposed to be the new manager. Like, no, you're not. You're a driver. <clears throat> and that turned, oh boy. Oh my. And that's where resiliency comes in again because this place was unsafe. It was really that southern good old boy thing. And yeah, it was not good. But you know, like as bad as that situation was. I just knew like that was the stepping stone to do something in Nashville. It got me to Nashville and that's where I needed to be. Cause I had to network with people. I had to get those connections and it came to a head where I was driving this truck. So my, my truck had broken down. It had been broken down for 14 weeks and I'll never forget 14 weeks because it's pretty bad. Whatever happened. It was horrible there. because they, yeah, they, like a head gasket went out. Oh God! <laughs> and, and so they put me in a Penske moving truck with forklift cylinders, 300 forklift cylinders. That's 73 pound cylinders filled with gas that expands 300 times its size, which is completely illegal. You cannot carry it in there, but they made me yeah, do it. Yeah, that doesn't sound safe. <clears throat> no, it's not. And so, but they, they forced me to do this because I said I'm, I was going to red tag my truck. I'm like, I'm not doing that. They made me because Tennessee's a right to work state. Like, great, you can leave. So I did it. And um, feared for my life every day, like genuinely feared for my life that I was going to blow up. Um, and so I'm just like, I'm going to die doing this job. You know, what can I do to get out of this really quick? I was like, oh, well, I teach lessons. I love teaching music lessons. Let's get back into that. Let's make a little bit of a nest egg, save up some money that I can pivot to another job. So I find School of Rock and I contact him. I was like, hey, you need any teachers? She's like, send me your resume. So I send my resume, and she writes back immediately, I'm opening another school in, in Nashville. I need a general manager. I'm like, oh, what, what? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I interviewed. She offered me the job on the spot. I called the next day. I put in my notice, and the, the regional manager didn't know I put my notice in that morning. He calls like, hey. Uh, there had also been some wage disputes where they lied to me that, said I was making more than the other drivers and I was actually making less. Oh god. Like, oh the silly Yankee. So uh um, with this, yes. Yeah, he yeah, he calls me and he's like, "Hey man, I went to bat for you and I got you that extra money." I was like, "You know what? I just put my 2 weeks notice in a few hours ago, but because of that, I quit." So I walked in, threw my keys and I was done. I quit right there. <laughs> and it Doesn't felt that amazing. Feel nice once in a while when you just get to walk out on it. <laughs> it was great. It was great. It was so good. Um, and then I got it, you know, and then opening the school of rock, it was, it was incredible. It was a dream job for me. God, I, 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 I love that story because like there you are driving around this like gaseous bomb. It, it and... totally was. And I'm like, I'm going to the airport and stuff. Like <laughs> I'm driving to the airport, delivering this stuff. Like 
there was one day there was like the Air National Guard was right there and like three helicopters go up above me. I'm like, this is it. They know I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Because you have to get TSA pre-checked. Like you have, you have, there's some background checks when you're doing hazmat. God. God. <laughs> so, so yeah, some of those, some of those quitting stories are just uh, fabulous. You know, one time I actually uh, put a boom box on top of my cubicle and played, take this job and shove it on the oh. last day on the job. Uh, so th- that was a fun one. That is a nice one. <laughs> I always wanted to like start doing my emails. Like when I knew I was going to quit of like regrettably yours or unfortunately Derek, <laughs> things like that. Just, like if anyone notices. So you're going into the school of rock and you're, you're now getting full time into doing music, which has been such a powerful thing in your life. It's almost like you did construction and this other job with the propane as you're trying to figure out how do I live within my values and the goals, the things that are really what make my heart happy in, in all of this. And so now, now you're going into school of rock. What, what happens there? Oh man. So getting to open this and like, just run with it and build it from the ground up was incredible. And then as we start getting students and like, you know, all my core values are here. It's like the education, it's music, it's working with Uh kids. But then like all of the parents or a vast majority of the parents, I mean, school of rocks expensive, especially in Nashville. So they're all like managers and agents and label people and famous people's kids. And, Oh wow. And sports like athletes, kids, all of this stuff. So I'm sitting in the middle of this and it's like, Oh, that guy's got a hundred Grammys, and that guy's got this artist, and that guy has a, a Super Bowl ring on, and it was just amazing. But I still like I never put myself and my music in front of them. If they wanted to ask, I would obviously share it because I, at the time I was also working on an album and was starting to play downtown a little bit and 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 gig in Nashville. But I didn't want to exploit my job and my trust. Because I was there, when I was there, I was there for the kids. And and because of that, I think that gave me even more trust with people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how long were you there at the School of Rock? I was there for three years. Okay. All right. The only reason I left was the pay was not great. Okay. Um, you know, School of Rock, is that a nonprofit? No, they're not. They oh, are okay. for, yeah, there are four profits. So School of Rock started as the Paul Green School of Rock in Philadelphia. And that's where the movie's loosely based off of. Yeah. It was this guy that had this program. He was crazy, yelled and cussed, but it worked. And now it's like a franchise thing. So there are some corporate schools, but man, there, I think there's like 350 schools in multiple countries around the world. And we had like the top program in the country. We won the the National oh, yes. Battle of the Bands for School of Rock. They had it at uh, Summerfest in Milwaukee every year. And we won two years in a row. <clears throat> yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Where do you go from there? What, do you, what are you doing now? Because now you're doing things that make your heart happy. Yeah, but it was also like, now I need to make my my wife happy and our our, our wallet happy. Not even that. She didn't care about what I did or money, but, you know, it was like, okay. <sighs> But also, I put my album out, and it was starting to get some, you know, little attention or whatever. And I was starting to get these opportunities to gig more. 
and to go out on the road, which is my dream to, to do that. Yeah. And so the opportunity really just kind of arose that I could play full time. And I talked to the owner. I was like, hey, I really hate to do this. But I also think like you need somebody. I was getting kind of burnt out, you know, with the pay. And, and there's a lot of stress. You, you go through a lot with those kids. Like you're there with them. Like you're, when they're going through stuff, you're going through stuff mm-hmm. with them. You're right. their therapy. And it was just a lot. And it kind of had run its course. And rather than leave on bad terms, I, I still wanted to be a part of it. But I knew I had the opportunity to play. So that's what I did. So I started playing full time. And, you know, it was scary. It was like, oh, am I going to make enough money? There's, it's that feast or famine. Like, there's months where we had more money we never had. And there's months where we had no money we ever had. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Thank God my, my wife always had like a consistent job of like, this is how much I make. I was like, that's ah, weird to me because my dad owns his own business. And my mom had one of those jobs, but that's ah, no fun. <laughs> I like, I, it didn't bother me. Not like I could be broke. I was broke in college and would just like go to the local tractor supply store and walk around because they had free popcorn. <laughs> I loved it. People were like, that's so depressing. I'm like, no, nah, I was the happiest I'd ever been in that store. I was like, I love this popcorn. It's really good. <laughs> you know, the, the employees are like gosh he really likes those lawnmowers he gets yeah. in here every saturday <laughs> yeah and, and i always buy like something like i i couldn't tell you how many like they had this really good like hand cream for guys that are working out in the fields and their hands get cracked in it fixes well at the time i was doing a lot of hand drumming so my hands were beat up pretty bad so like I couldn't imagine what they thought when I come in like <laughs> every week I'm buying a whole new like puck of hand cream. They're like, um, yeah. this guy's yeah. walking around eating popcorn, buying hand cream. Like <laughs> here he comes. Here he is. Like there's, there's probably stories. <laughs> Don't let your kids take lessons with him. That's weird. That's the popcorn hand cream guy. <laughs> so where did you go? Where did you tour? all over um really what was kind of my niche that did the best was doing casinos um you know those those four or five night stays that no one cares that you're there and you make your amazing money and then during the day you're bored out of your mind and and i don't drink when i play and so like and in hotel and casinos and hotels require that you don't drink while you're playing um but a lot of the guys in the band do. And so like they hated that part, but you know, you're sitting there in a hotel room in Bismarck, North Dakota in the middle of the winter time, because most of the people in Nashville wanted to go South because it's warm in the winter time. Well, gigs are only paying like hundred bucks a man to go South. Like, no, thanks. I'll go up North and make three grand a night. So that's really what we, what we did and what I did. And it worked out really well, <clears throat> but the same kind of thing. So I, I do a, I do some longer runs for casinos, but then I'd also do like long weekends, like leave on Thursday, play Thursday night, maybe, or do an acoustic set Thursday night and then do uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or just Friday, Saturday, can then come back uh, and then play on Broadway or somewhere in Nashville during the week. And I mean, I'd be playing on Broadway and doing triples where I'd be doing three shifts of four hour sets, no breaks. And then you get done, you pack your stuff up and walk to the next venue and go again. The The one thing I did have is that I was doing it for myself as a front man and as a drummer. So if my voice got really tired, I'd play drums, which was good. Um, but it, all, it didn't always work out that way where people in Nashville didn't really know I was a drummer. 
they knew I was a front man and like I get calls all the time. Hey, I need a guitarist tonight. Come down. Like, you know, like I'm a piss poor guitarist, right? Like, no, dude, I've heard you play. You're great. Like, have you really, have you really, like, I, I'm really great at faking it. Like I can play the parts, which I guess in Nashville, that's kind of rare too. People want to kind of wank a little too much where I'm like, I'm just going to stay right in the box. Cause that's all I know. <laughs> so yeah. So it was, it was just one of those things where I was just gigging a lot. So, okay. So getting a little bit personal here, it sounds like your ticket to being a part of the music scene is your willingness to work hard, your willingness to say yes, because at least to that point, you were not a virtuoso. You were not the, um, uh, the, the, the guy who was kind of like the guitar god or whatnot. You were the guy who was always willing to be there, to show up, to work well with people, and to, to learn quickly and adapt. Yeah, and, and to a fault as well. Um, I was always, I never said no. And it, it really got to a point where I'd have people where I would do anything for them. Like if it meant moving, moving your bedroom down the street or whatever, I would do it. And then when I needed somebody, oh, I'm busy. Sorry, man. Can't do it or whatever. But it, it, it was kind of hard because they weren't like the same way my friends from back home were. They weren't drop everything to, to do something for you. It was, it was a lot of like, oh, you can help me out. Thank you. They were cool, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like a friendship that I wanted. So mm-hmm. the more I put in, the less I got back. And it, it started to wear on me quite a bit. Right. Right. And it, it, it absolutely will. And, and, you know, is there a certain point where you kind of had a breaking point with that or, or yeah, had to kind of learn the, the, learn to be different or how'd you yeah um i had a week where (laughs) i was playing in nashville and i had this like weekly gig on sunday nights at this place and it was like 30 dollars base pay for four hours it was nothing but i made really great money on tips because it was always during like football or hockey games and it was just acoustic just me and I, you know, I, I played, it was great. I never had any complaints. People loved it. They always tipped me well. So that's how I judge if I did well. And then the guy that was the booking guy called me one day and, and he's like, Hey man, um, this isn't me saying this, but the manager, he's like, he, he says, you talk too much in between songs. He wants you to just play more. I'm like, yeah, uh, I interact with the crowd. That's how I make my money. He's like, no, I know. He's like, that's just what they want. I'm like, okay. So I go back and I, I do it his way. And my tips were like a fourth of what they normally were because no, you know, you're not interacting. There's no reason. And what he's not understanding is people are leaving faster. They're not staying as long. They're not drinking as much. So he's losing money. He doesn't even realize it. So then the next week I'm like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to do my show again. And he fires me. <clears throat> so I'm, and I find out he doesn't, the, he made the booking guy fire me, which is fine. Like I didn't really care, but I was on the road and we were driving to Iowa City. We had a show in Iowa City. And I get the call from this guy. And he's like, hey, man, they don't want you anymore for this gig. I'm like, cool. I really hated that gig anyway. Not a problem. And uh, I, you know, I had oppor- other opportunities. It wasn't a big deal. But I was like, going to this casino in Iowa City. I didn't want to be at the casino. And the next gig we had, I didn't really want to play at that venue because I hated that venue. And I was like, this is not sustainable 
I can't live like this forever. Mm-hmm. I was making good money, but like the shelf life of a front man that is, you know, was in my thirties, mid thirties, and I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't. I think like I think it's time to figure out another path. Gotcha. <laughs> and that's when um, I had some. I knew some people that worked at KHS. And I was like, well, that's a cool place. They make Mapex drums and, and stuff. I didn't really know all their brands, but I knew they made Mapex. I thought that was cool. And so I had applied for, they had a sales, inside sales gig open up. And I applied for it and interviewed. And the interview was the weirdest thing ever. Their HR lady was just so weird. Oh, my gosh. I could tell you stories just about her. She was interesting. Um, so they offered me the job, and I was like, can I think about it for a week? And they're like, yeah, but please let us know soon. So I called my wife. I'm like, hey, they offered me the job. She's like, great. This is what you wanted. And I'm like, yeah, but I worked my whole life to go on the road. And she's like, okay, right. here's the deal. She's like, you're burnout. You're, you're not happy with it. It's not what you wanted. It's not going where you want it to go. Do it for six months. And if you hate it, go back on the road. The road's not going anywhere. <clears throat> and I was there, and I loved it. I loved the company. I loved the people. I loved being back in music. Now, I didn't love doing inside sales, but... It wasn't really sales. <clears throat> it was more so inside territory management. We had an outside sales rep for everybody that was inside sales had an outside sales rep. And they were the ones doing the sales. I was basically entering orders and making sure their customers, the music stores, were happy. It was great. I loved it. Great. Great. And it sounds like your wife is actually a pretty insightful. And she's been oh. behind you on a lot of these decisions. She's, uh, it, it sounds like she's been kind of the voice of encouragement behind you in a lot of these things. She is. And I, I kind of take it for, for granted sometimes because she's not the cheerleader type. She's not the one that's going to be out there waving my banner. Yeah. But she's always the one that knows what's best for me, not yeah. what's best for her. She always, she always puts me first. And I, I forget that, like, you know, because and that guy that everybody, you know, pat me on the back. And sometimes I like that. And that's just not her style. But that same thing where it's like, if this is what you want to do, we're going to make this work. And, that's... And, and where did you go? So you're, you're with KHS for a while. Mm-hmm. And what led you to the next thing? Yeah, so I was there uh, just about a year. And I mean, I knew I wanted to move up in the company and I, um, they had artist relations jobs, like getting to work with artists. And, and I had been working with artists, um, doing different things, school of rock. And then myself as an artist. So I I was getting networked out there pretty well, but I was like, man, that'd be great to be that guy. And I had endorsement deals on my own. So I'm like, I loved those guys. I wanted to be that guy for somebody. So I was like, no one's going to quit that job. That's a job you have to die to lose kind of thing. And, Sure enough, like one of the guys quit. He wanted to move back closer to his family. So I'm like, okay, I'm applying. And I got it. And it was, it was, it was another like dream job. It was perfect for me. It was where like, I got to be corporate and have that steady paycheck, but I got to be creative and work with artists and, and use that artist mindset to work on the marketing side and, and help these people out. And I got to do some cool stuff with it too. That's that's awesome. To, uh, and and so, who were you working with uh, in in this? What what were the people? Um, so, well, first the brands: um, Honer Harmonicas and Accordions, Lana Ukuleles, Hercules 
uh, stand, so like guitar number one guitar stand in the world. Yeah. Um, and H. Jimenez mariachi string Latin string instruments. So, but as far as artists, uh, again that just that roster from Honer is is crazy. Like I've got a voicemail saved in my phone from Steven Tyler. Like, oh, sweet. Things like that where he said, like, oh, you saved my life during the pandemic by sending me this care package. And um, and getting to work with, like, people like that and, and Kix Brooks and and all of these, like, really big people in Nashville um, was, was amazing. And getting to go to these shows. But there was also a part of me that, like, resented it a little bit because I was... I, I was really good at helping people's career get bigger and helping them grow right at the expense of my own. Mm. So uh, I started, I started writing a book and it's called always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Oof. And it's about how I've stood on all of these famous stages, the Ryman, Grand Ole Opry, uh, Madison square garden. I've been in all these places, Coachella, you name it. I've been there and I've never played them. It's it's hard to stand on the side of the stage at the Ryman and the Grand Ole Opry over a hundred times and never played it. That yeah. close. Like yeah. That close. Yeah. You're like, yeah, but no one gets that view. I said, and no one wants that view once you have it. Hmm. Hmm. Is is that is is that kind of a wound that you still kind of deal with? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. How's that book come along? Uh, uh, you know, it's a book. All right. <laughs> I never <laughs> wanted to write a book. And then like I had some friends that encouraged me. So like, oh, I've got like half of it done. Yeah. If I really tried, I could get it done. Yeah, they are. They, they, the first third of a book flows out of you. Second third is a discipline. The last third is God help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally yeah and, and about that time that i started writing it too like is when i started my business and started doing my own thing which is what you're doing now <clears throat> it is um so I, I guess i'll have to preface that with another like hard lesson where yeah at khs i loved my job you know during the pandemic mark and i had done some things that no one else was doing in the industry and like it really took hold but we were getting like less and less respect and weren't getting any more money. And, and I had grown my brands from like almost no rosters to these really big rosters. Now Honer was built pretty much, but the other brands, like I built them up. Like I had, I helped make the Julia Michaels signature ukulele where she took that ukulele on, uh, on the voice and on Songland and didn't cost us a thing. Like those are relationships that I helped build and I wasn't getting anything back. I wasn't getting any more money. And then I was like, okay, if you don't want to give me money, I need help. I need an assistant. We need people. And they wouldn't do it. <clears throat> so it was just that point where I'm like, okay, they're never going to, um, I love it here, but it, this isn't going to change and I need to grow. And so I got, I found this company in, uh, in Nashville that, um, offered me a job doing their marketing and paying me a ton of money. And so I took the job. I left the gig I was at. I didn't really want to leave. I didn't think I had a bad feeling. I have a bad feeling about this. If you can tell all my star Wars stuff, um, <laughs> it just didn't seem right. And I'm like, I'm chasing the money. 
and it, they were actually down in Franklin. So my drive every day with traffic was like an hour to an hour and a half each way. So I'm like no way. two to three hours in the car a day. And the first week I realized the owner is a tyrannical madman. He is yes. a narcissist. And I'm like sitting here like, oh my God, I just left the gig of a lifetime for more money for a place that like I instantly felt sick to my stomach. Yep. And then the same week we find out our dog has lung cancer. Oh God. And so like trauma, 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 trauma to the point where I couldn't get to work without listening to like a self-help. You can do this today. One day at a time thing every day on the way to work was the only way I got through it. And so I'm doing it. I'm working my butt off and, but nothing's good enough. Nothing's good enough for this guy. And I'm there like five months or whatever. And I'm like, okay, you know, my wife and I are talking. I'm like, I'm miserable. I can't do this. I got to find something else, but I want to just jump into something else. I should call the old company, take my job, get my job back or try to get it back. They probably won't. What am I going to do? And then I start getting some of my own clients like doing coaching and doing just helping them with their marketing and digital marketing and content creation. And she's like, okay, can you get a couple more clients enough to like get you at this dollar amount? I'm like, I think I can. <clears throat> so I do. And, you know, we go home for Christmas. I get, you know, we get a little Christmas bonus. I'm like, Oh, everything's good. Whatever. Get back after the new year's. We're there the second day getting back after the holidays and they pull me into their conference room, and the three owners are there. And the three owners are never together. One of them, like, flew down for this or whatever. And he puts this piece of paper, and it's, like, a picture on my Facebook page of this YouTube video I made. Because I, I have my YouTube channel. And it was, I did a review on this case company's case. Well, they sell the competitor. Like, they sold these, this other company's case. And he's like, you can't do that. And I'm like, this doesn't say anything I can't do. I told you I had this YouTube channel and I do these reviews. It has nothing to do with you. Like, this is a this is my side thing. I didn't do this on work. He's like, and you posted it during work hours. I'm like, no, I didn't. You're reading it wrong. He didn't even know. Like, he's looking. He's like, he saw Derek Frank posted this 10 hours ago. And he's looking and it's 9.15, and which would have made it whatever time. He didn't realize that it's a generalization on Facebook. It's not like exactly 10 hours ago. And without even showing me proof, he, he's like, you're done. You're fired. I'm like, thank God. Never in my life had I been fired, but also the weight that instantly was lifted off of me. Like, yeah, I was mad because the guy was an idiot, but instantly I was like, oh, my God. Everything was gone. All the stress that I had. Oh, and, and, you know, my dog had just, we had to just put him down to so oh, like God. all of that, but it's all like gone. The anxiety, yeah. I was such crippling anxiety. My lunch breaks twice a week. I was having to talk to a therapist during mm. my lunch breaks. Yeah. I'll never forget sitting in my car trying to hide that I'm on my laptop doing therapy. It was that bad. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was like, I just couldn't hardly even function. And so I get this, this other contract and I'm able to quit. I get fired, but. I got this contract, so it was fine. It just set my timeline a bit two two months earlier. Yeah, okay. But then my business, like, okay, well, I have all this time to dedicate to it, so it took off. It did great. So thank you for firing me. I really appreciate getting fired because if it wasn't for them, I would never have been able to do it. 
that wasn't a good fit from the very beginning. And, you know, I've, I've, I've been in those situations where, you know, you leave one employer, you go to the next one and you go, oh my gosh, this was really the bad move. The other door is now shut. I am trapped here. SOS. And you're <laughs> trying to make the best. I actually had one situation where I had six employees walk into my office and shut the door and say, you're not going to last three weeks here. And, and I'm going, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I learned, you know, but you know, the, these, these, uh, these places become the culture that the leader makes it. And it can be suffocating and terrible. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened to you. Panic symptoms, yeah. difficulty sleeping, hard time coping at work, always feeling like your chest is constricting, like the whole thing, you know? Yeah, it was, it was horrible. Um, it, it felt like almost being back in college again. Yeah. But this time it was like, all right, I know I can get out of it, but the crippling anxiety and the, the guilt I had from leaving that job that I loved for more money, thinking it was, you know, they said all the right things to get me there. And then it was instantly out the window. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't see dressing. through it. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, I was mad at myself. That I didn't see it. And then, Mm -hmm. that shame of like oh my gosh you know what if i quit or what if i you know but i never had shame about getting fired there because i was, was the greatest thing that they did for me <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i totally relate uh and a company that will say anything in a job interview just to get you to work there yep. and then you find out later that half of it was just nonsense it was a hundred percent nonsense yeah yeah so you're getting out of this situation you feel liberated and are you going into what you're doing now? Yeah. So okay. that's, that's where I start my business. Things are going great. And the more I'm in my business, the more I'm like, I don't have to be in Nashville. And I don't even, my wife and I had kicked the tires on moving closer to home and family and being closer. Uh, she's got three nieces. Her two sisters have three girls. Um, and we were missing them growing up. And then my nephew is 21 and, I was missing a lot of stuff with him. He's my buddy. And um, so, and we, we were like, it was getting to the point where you're seeing, oh, average Saturday having a barbecue at the house. And we're not there. We're never there. Yeah. And it, got, it, it was getting hard where I never thought that that would be me. I never thought that I'd want to leave Nashville. I mean, if my wife and I were just talking the other day, if you would have said five months ago that I would live in Des Moines, Iowa, I would say you're nuts. And and it just happened that fast where we were kicking the tires like, oh, oh, maybe we should move. Maybe we should move. What town would you want to go to? And I was like, well, I don't want to live in Illinois because their taxes are really high. And she's like, okay, well, you love Wisconsin. And I'm like, yeah, I love Madison and Milwaukee, but it's way too cold. And she's like, okay, so what does that leave us? And I was like, what about Des Moines, Iowa? I love Des Moines. I used to love touring there. It's a great town. They've got a lot of good beer and a lot of golf courses. It's everything I want in life. Like, it's It's perfect. And she's like, you'd live in Des Moines? Like, yeah, whatever. Not that it would ever happen. Her brother-in-law works for an electrician's company. He's like, oh, hey, we are hiring project managers because we have all these new Microsoft data center builds that are going on. Told my wife to apply. She did. Goes up there, interviews, and they offer her the job. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm in Pittsburgh at the time with a client. And, you know, I'm, I'm having this great time. This is like one of my favorite clients. They're still one of my clients. I love them. I'm just having the time of my life with them. 
And my wife's back in Des Moines. She's having the time of her life with her family. And she said, they called and offered me the job already. I'm like, wow. So we're really going to do this. And she's like, yeah. And I said, did they give you a time frame? Like a couple months? Like what? And she's like, three weeks. Three weeks? We've got to pack everything we've had in that. Weeks? Oh. Um, yeah, your, your uh, sound went out. You were talking about three weeks. Nope. Oh, uh... There you're back. Okay, you got me? Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. I bumped something. That's okay. That's okay. So three Darn weeks. It. Yeah, so, so she said, okay, you've got three weeks to do this. And I'm like, um how are we going to make this happen? Like, I just didn't understand what we were, how we, how we were going to do it, but we did it. And, uh, it was super stressful. It was a lot. Um, but you know, we packed up, got everything put into, uh, you know, the big Penske moving truck and put my car on a trailer behind the moving truck, packed up her pickup truck and left. Brilliant. Brilliance. And you're sitting in this, for those people who are not watching on YouTube, uh, right now Derek is sitting in this studio with a beautiful sonar drum set behind him. And he's got all of this uh, equipment like synthesizers and, and recording uh, stuff that, that's right next to him and uh, a good deal of Star Wars gear. Uh, and and so you're what, explain exactly what it is that you're doing now. Yeah, so... Uh, my business is uh, mostly consulting now. When I first started, I was doing a, a lot of deliverables where I'd make people's content for them or help them with it. But I moved past that where now I just kind of coach their teams on what to do because, you know, if I don't have to do deliverables, it's even better. And then if they don't get the results they want, it's like, did your team implement what I told them to do? No. Okay, well, let's try it again. So it's easier to keep your contracts, um, which is great. But then, like I had mentioned, this opportunity came about with this, this teen tech center. And so I was like, this is everything I want. Like, I love all my techie stuff. What people can't see on screen is my giant setup. I've got this desk that I made out of an old marimba frame. So it's all crank height adjustable. I've right. got a 50 inch touchscreen in front of me that I built. I've got a 50 inch ultra wide and then another 50 inch. And then all these racks full of gear. It's so cool. And the pandemic was amazing and also bad for me because I just like started tinkering and got into even more tech and streaming and video. And um, so when this opportunity came about to get back in a nonprofit to make good money, like the, what they offered me, I was like, Oh, it's more than what I made at KHS. Okay. Well done. Yeah. And they just came out of the gate offering that. That's like, they're like, that was in the grant. I'm like, okay. And to get to work with music and underprivileged teens and tech and all of it. it was like somebody was looking out for me yeah yeah all all along like the the overall theme that i'm just kind of getting out of this entire thing there are things that fill your heart there are things that extract from you those things that extract from you are pointlessness and uh people who don't align with your values and when you are truly going in the direction that you're you know needing to go for your heart your heart is your heart is full you're really really living and 
you know, your, your hard work and many, many, many years of getting yourself to the point where you're truly qualified to do what it is that you're doing right now, that you are the perfect person for this job. It, it, it takes a long time to make it. It just doesn't happen when you start a YouTube channel and you start producing content. It really takes a long time to build that trust, build those audiences, build those relationships. And here you are, and you've got lots of artist relations. You've got all of these things that have driven you to being able to be exactly where it is that you are right now. And you, you're, you're truly in this wonderful place where you're living your whole um your whole passion out of all the 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 trials that you've had and being born with these these various physical maladies and so forth that you've you know you've you've put behind you and now you're you're making it happen with with what you really love thank you yeah and and that's that's always been a thing too cuz like with like with my hand there's always been that that fear that I would lose the ability to use my hand. And in the last three years, it's kind of become an, a thing where I can only play drums for like maybe 45 minutes to an hour without my whole hand and arm hurting so bad. I can't hardly wow. use it. And so like, it, it was one of those things where I'm like, this is going to affect me a lot because that's my safety zone. That's where I go. That's my healing. Um, what do I do when I can't? And then this opportunity pops up to start working with kids again and to, to start having another outlet. Like I was just, somebody was looking at whatever, whether it's God, universe, whatever people believe, it, it worked. It, it aligned with me. Yeah. You know, it sounds like it aligned with you because you just kept putting your forehead to the wall and pushing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even at the wrong times, for sure. Like there, there's a lot of times where I was not making the right decisions. Like, Trust me, most of them were not the right decisions, but that's what makes you stronger and what makes you learn. So, so how old are you? 38. All right. So you're 38 years old. Let's talk to uh, 18-year-old Derek. What do you tell him? Hold on. Hold on tight. Um, it's going to happen. It's going to happen fast, and it's going to happen not in a way you're going to want it to happen. You're not going to like how it happens a lot of the times. Um, but as my dad always says, you fall in shit and come in smelling like roses all the time. And I don't know if it's just that I'm lucky or that I've made that way. But, you know, tell 18-year-old Derek, like, hey, man, it's going to be okay. And also, you're not as cool as you think you are. <laughs> That's probably the biggest one. Like, you think you're really cool. You're really not. <laughs> you're really not. No, I, I yeah, we've we've all gone through that stage, and we see the we see the pictures in our parents' photo albums, and we go, Ugh, oh yeah. My brother loves posting my senior pictures with me with like my Oakleys on and my marching snare drum and my guitar and stuff. He's like, you're such a dork. Yeah, yeah. The Oakleys were the thing, weren't they? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like now i'm like i'm all about star wars you know i've got a star wars sleeve tattoo and my whole studio's star wars I'm like just embrace you and what makes you happy because this wasn't anything new like this has always been a thing just like oh i was like oh that'd be cool now i'm like oh, i'm married to a smoking hot wife that's way out of my league and I'm like ah 
She thinks that it's cool that I'm a dork. Fantastic. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect fit. It really it's, is. And it, so statement of intention, where is it that you want to go in life from here? I have no idea. And I think that's what I love. Um, I, I like a little bit of chaos. Um, I like a little bit of drama and uncertainty. I think if everything was cushy and safe for me, I, I'd be a drug addict. I honestly, I think I would be a drug addict if everything was safe and cushy for me. So, so you're, you're, you're praying for more chaos yeah. that will refine you into a better you. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be bad chaos. Like, like I've gotten, um, a, a little bit of bad, but maybe not all the really hardships, but, um, you know, I'd love to stick with this tech center for a while and, uh, then maybe figure out what that means. I would love to go into more like board work and consulting still, um, and travel more. Yeah. I love traveling and, um, yeah, but right now this is, this is where my heart's at and I love it. How do people get in touch with you? Ah, they can go to thederekfrank.com. That is, uh, that has all my links and everything you could ever want to see. And then some. I want to thank you for being willing to come and be so open and share your life because it's not always an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, being vulnerable and talking about your highs and talking about your lows. And so thank you so much for being willing to just go on the record and talk about what has made you into you. Oh, well, thanks for just letting me riff too. You know, it's, it's oftentimes where again, Oh, you talk too much. You're too loud. You're too this. And and to have a platform where you just let me go felt really good. I appreciate that a lot. Oh, good. Good. Well, you, you have, there were so many Easter eggs in there that I didn't know about that we got to kind of discover. So thank you. And uh, to the listener, if you like this kind of content, please like, please subscribe, leave a review for my podcast, either on YouTube or Apple or Spotify, wherever it is that you're listening to this, it really helps out. Thank you so much for listening to Mindful Mutiny. Now go be something great. <laughs>